like to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you would locate there, verse 23. And I'll read through the, the end of the chapter, through verse 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Just ask you to follow along whatever copy of God's Word that you have. Can you all believe that we're already at the end of 1 Thessalonians? Went by pretty quickly. All right, verse 23. This is the Word of the Lord for us today. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are the almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all things. We gather in Jesus' name today, Lord. And we, I pray, have worshipped you now through song, through the reading of your word. Lord, through prayer. I pray, Father God, that our worship of you would be more than just external with, with our mouths and with our tongues, but yet, Lord, with our hearts. We believe, Lord, that Jesus is coming back again one day. That is true, and you've proven, Lord, that Jesus is coming back one day because you raised your son from the dead, and that man, Jesus Christ, will come and judge the world in righteousness. Oh, Lord, I pray that through the preaching of your word, through our time together in your word, even as we admonish one another through songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that all of it would make us ready more and more for that day that you would use it to that end. Please bless me now, Lord, as I seek to deliver your word to your people. Give me grace, O Lord Lord God, that I may serve them well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we come here to the end of the the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, I want to share with you a message entitled, Until Then, from this passage of Scripture, because Paul, like previously in chapter 3 writes in what's called the optative mood, meaning that he is wishing this for them. It's like a prayer that he prays for the Thessalonians. He um, is wishing this for them, this benediction. Uh, As we work our way through this, the first thing that we're going to see here really is the church's expectation of God. And this is found in verses 23 and 24. As we consider our lives as Christians and as the Thessalonians should have thought about their lives as believers, uh, they should come to realize that it's never all about what we can do in and of ourselves. But ultimately, our lives and our salvation is dependent upon God. And until then, until that day and when we see Christ, it is, we are dependent upon Him and we are expecting certain things from God. 
In this text, I'd like to show you what those things are. The first thing that we'll see in this is that we expect from God um, complete sanctification. If you'll look with me there at verse 23, we'll work our way back through this. And we see that Paul, of all the things that he could have said about God to begin with, he says, now may the God of peace. He could have said the God of uh, grace. He could have said the God of love. He could have said um, the God, the holy God of all the things that he said. He said the God of peace. And apparently among the Thessalonians, there were things going on where they needed to know Peace, because they'd already been told in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. And then they were told afterward how to deal with one another and what is good interaction among one another. So apparently there were some things going on where they needed to have peace. They were concerned about those who had already died, who were Christians and who had died. And they were concerned that, hey, what if they miss out on the return of Christ? What's going to happen to them? They were a church who was suffering. A church who was suffering persecution just like the Apostle Paul had suffered as well when he was there. So they needed to know peace. And Paul here reminds them that the God that he is calling upon to bless them and to keep them is a God of peace. So he says, now may the God of peace himself. If you'll look back over at chapter 3 verse 11 you'll notice here Paul in this same time where he's wishing uh, this upon the church where he's like praying for them in verse 11 he says now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ back to chapter 5 verse 23 now may the God of peace himself do what sanctify you completely when we when we think about sanctification we all know the definition of that by now, right? Does everybody know the definition of sanctification or to be sanctified? Now, it's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it this morning. But to, to, sancti- to be sanctified means to be set apart for, to be holy. To be set apart for holiness. Sanctification is the growing in holiness. It's that gradual holiness. All right. There's a passage of scripture in the Bible in Romans chapter eight. So you might know whose image is it that God wants us to be conformed into? Jesus, that's right. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's God's goal for every one of us. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're going to be a believer one day, if you've not yet believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, but yet you do come to believe that one day, the goal for God in your life is for you and for me to become like Jesus Christ. Now, uh, back over in chapter 4, do y'all remember where Paul's talked about sanctification already? If you turn back there, you'll, you'll be reminded... In verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he's talked about this holiness. He's talked about this sanctification. In verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he gives them like three things that they are to do. Three things that describe this sanctification. The first thing in verse 3, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Second thing in chapter 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, 
like the Gentiles who do not know God. The third thing is that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Three points there of sanctification that we are to do. But yet, here at the end, as you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, here at the end, Paul's not saying, hey, do these things. What he's doing is he's calling upon God the God of peace, to sanctify them completely, to do this work within them that they might be what God's called them to be. You know, this works its way out, folks, in real life church. If you go back up in your Bibles to verse 14 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you, you look at this, you see, warn the unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. How does God go about sanctifying His people? He has a means by which He does that. The means by which He does that many times is one another. As we warn one another, as we comfort one another, as we uphold one another, as we hear the Word of God preached among us and we seek to submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. So God, uh, we're relying upon God. We're expecting God to sanctify us completely. Paul is praying that and wishing that for the Thessalonians. But we also see here that he is desiring a whole preservation of them. A whole preservation. In the second part of verse 23, he says, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved. Preserved just means to be kept, to like withdraw something, to pull it away and, and keep it away for safekeeping. Be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a whole preservation that is expected of God for God's people. Now, I want to ask you all a quick question this morning. How many of you are a diehard dichotomist? How many of you are diehard trichotomist? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? All right, good. That's what I expected. That's the reason why I don't throw a whole lot of words like that out in, in sermons because you don't see that stuff in the Bible. But arguments come up from passages like this about, well, is, is man made up of just soul and body? Or is man spirit, soul, and body? Is he a, is he a trichotomy or is it a dichotomy of man? For me, I don't really care what you believe about that. All right, it doesn't matter to me one way or, or the other. As you look at this passage, though, you see that Paul apparently brings up three different areas. He brings up three different parts of man, if you will, that he is relying upon God to preserve completely at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first part, the spirit, maybe we would call that the spiritual man. That's the part in us that's been made alive by God through His Word, the preaching of the Word and the Gospel, and we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and we now, the Spirit of man, can understand the things of God because why? The Spirit of God indwells us. We are made spiritually alive. Apart from the Spirit of God, the Spirit of man cannot understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But as the Spirit of God indwells us, we can then understand the great things of God that He has revealed to us in His Word. So the spiritual man, maybe as you look at the soul, perhaps this is the actual man. This is... Um, 
who you are. This is the person that you are, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. The soul will uh, continue to live. The soul, even the soul of the those who had died for the gospel, were under the soul, were under the altar in heaven, and so the soul goes to be with the Lord, perhaps. But this is the actual man, the the soul of man, and then the last part is the body, the physical man. The physical, this is who you are in flesh and blood. This is who we know each other to be. This is who we see. We see one another. And we know you're, we know each other's names, hopefully. And we, uh, we recognize one another. We all have different attributes physically. Jesus isn't, a, Jesus isn't a Savior who just saves your soul. Jesus isn't a Savior who just saves your spirit. And He isn't a Savior who just saves your body. Let us not as a church think for one second that our bodies will not exist eternally because they will. Jesus saves the whole man. And because we will be raised from the dead one day if we die before Christ returns, because there will be a bodily resurrection one day, it is proof that Jesus Christ did indeed save and He does save. There is a resurrection of the body as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul is relying upon God, the God of peace, to save His people to preserve them whole. But we also see here in verse 24 that there is an an expectation of God's faithfulness. Just like it says there, He who calls you is what? Faithful, who also will what? Do it. Man, I tell you what, if if, uh, being a Christian and being finally saved one day was relying upon me, I'd, I'd have no hope. I would, I mean, I, lo- I used to lose stuff all the time. My car keys, I would lose my head if it wasn't attached to my body. I've gotten a little bit better, thankfully, over time. But if I could lose my salvation, I would lose it. But I'm thankful that my salvation, and I hope that you're thankful that your salvation is not based upon how great you are or how faithful you can be. Our salvation, we are relying upon the fact that God is faithful and He will do what He has said He will do, not because of how great we are, but because of how great His Son, Jesus Christ, is. Just like the people of Israel were not brought into that land because they were a righteous people, just like Daniel did not pray in Daniel chapter 9 because of his righteousness or the people's righteousness, but it's because of the mercy and the faithfulness of our God. And when we get to that, get to heaven one day and we stand before the Lord and before God, we will not be there on that day because we were able to hold on. We will be there on that day because our God is faithful and he did what he promised that he would do through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there will be nothing for us to boast in, but he who boasts let him boast in the Lord and we will stand there on that day worshiping God for what he has done to redeem wretched sinners like ourselves it's all because of him it's not because of us but yet at the same time God has said to us obey 
God has said to us, the will of God is your sanctification. Do this. So we do not dismiss one for the other. We take the counsel of God and we receive it. But yet we know God is doing it and will be faithful. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, as he said in Philippians. Now, as you look back there at verse 23, when you see those words, at the coming, what does that mean to y'all? At this point, after working our way through First Thessalonians, does that word coming mean anything to y'all? Do you know another word that you could use in place of that? That anyone would dare to try to say? Thank you. Good. The parousia of Christ. How many chapters in the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians is the coming of Christ mentioned or the return of Christ? How many? Uh, There's five chapters. How many times is it mentioned at least? Five. And it's at the end of each chapter, right? In 1 Thessalonians. Exactly. All right. Let's go to our second point. Here we see the church's expectation of herself. The church's expectation of herself. This is found in verses 25 through 27. All right? So the first thing Paul says here, and you might notice how often the word brethren is used in this passage. Really, uh, since verse 12, we see it in verse 12. Then we um, find it again in verse 14, brethren. And uh, now, down here in verse 25, we see brethren. If you look at verse 26, in the middle of it, you see the word brethren. Then you go down to verse 27, at the very end of it, brethren. Now, I'm just taking this as though he's talking to the whole church. I could be wrong about that. Maybe he's just talking to the men. But I, I take it as though he's just he's talking to the whole church, and that's the way he's referring to the, to the saints. So, first thing that he says to them is, brethren, pray for us. The Apostle Paul... Of all people needed prayer. This guy wrote 13 books in the New Testament. This guy suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. He was willing to stand amid great opposition. He was determined to fulfill the ministry that the Lord had given to him. He had, you know, he's, if there was a super Christian, it would have been the Apostle Paul. But here he says to the Thessalonians, these people that may have been doubting him a little bit, that may have been struggling, he says to them, brethren, pray for us. The us there is probably Paul and his traveling companions as they're continuing to go about preaching the gospel. But he needs prayer. And that reminds me today that if the Apostle Paul needed prayer, so do we, don't we? We need prayer for ourselves, and we need to be praying for one another. I'm not going to use that phrase, you know, I need the prayer and you need the practice. Anybody ever heard you say that? Anybody ever uh, heard that before? Um, but we all need the prayer of one another. God works amazing things through prayer. And I want to thank you all for your prayers. Many of you have talked about, uh, as I've you know, uh, had some uh, health issues recently. Thankfully, some of that's settling down a little bit. But uh, many of you have just talked about uh, praying for me, and I really do appreciate that because when you say that you're doing that, I don't look at that and say, oh, yeah, well, okay, whatever. That doesn't really matter. It really does matter. And we could do a quick little study, but we're not going to, on how Paul depended on the prayers of the saints and what he thought would be accomplished through those prayers. So I thank you for your prayers. 
And also, while I'm thinking about it, I want to make sure that on this October, the last Sunday in October, I want to thank you all for your um, kindness and love that you've displayed. I know toward me, and I'm sure toward Brother David as well, during Pastor Appreciation Month. There, y'all have just showered us in many ways with your kindness and your love. And I thank you uh, for that. It, it means a great deal to, to me and to my family. We've enjoyed some gift cards at some eating places that we wouldn't have gone to otherwise if we hadn't have been given those uh, from you. So thank you very much. You've been very kind. He says, brethren, praying. And that's the first part. About forgot to put it up there. The second thing that is expected from the church herself is brethren greeting. In verse 26, he says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, you could find other references to this holy kiss in Romans chapter 16 at the end, almost at the end of Romans 16, 1 Corinthians at the end, and you can also find it at the end of 2 Corinthians where he admonishes them to greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a cultural thing. And if you were to go to countries in the east, you'd probably find this a lot more. I think about a couple of sports figures. Uh, Nikola Jokic plays for the Denver Nuggets. He was a part of the championship team. And then there's a, a, a tennis player, one of the best in the world or best ever, uh, Novik Jokic, I think is the way I said He's from Serbia. And uh, I bring that up because after the Denver Nuggets won the championship, I noticed that they were like kissing their coach. And there was these big guys out there kissing their coach. and They were all kissing one another. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? But why are they doing that? It's because um, Nikola Jokic is from Serbia. And that is how they greet one another. They kiss one another on the cheek. Men kissing men, women kissing women, but they kiss one another. And that's a form of a dis- displaying love. Now, I was sitting here this morning, kind of thinking over some things, and uh, Gentry walked in. He walked right up to me and took out his hand and shook my hand. And I appreciated that greeting. I was thinking, wow, what would it have been if Gentry would have reached over or bent over and kissed me on the cheek? That would have really been something. You know, I know, right? So, and back in that day, in the church today, surely it was men greeting men in that way, women greeting women in that way. But think about the importance of this. If you're going to walk up to somebody, kiss them on the cheek. He says it's a holy kiss. Because if you're going to do that, it ought to display something besides just going through emotion. You ought to be saying in that, I love you. You're my brother in Christ. Jesus was betrayed with a what? Kiss. Judas came along in the garden. And the one whom he kissed is the one that they were to, betray, to arrest. It's the one that he would betray We can go through motions of shaking hands and greeting one another. But brethren, let it be with love. Let it be 
holy. Let it be that which is pleasing to the Lord. Brethren, greet one another with a holy kiss. Third thing is that we see brethren reading. Brethren praying. Brethren greeting. Brethren reading. In verse 27, he says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle, epistle is a letter with a purpose. Epistle, that definition is not original with me. This epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Paul takes this letter that he has written to the Thessalonians. He says, hey, this ought to be read to everybody, but he doesn't just kind of suggest it. He, he actually, like, demands it. Does anybody have a different translation besides I charge you? What was that? I put you under oath. All right. I command. So he says, to those who receive this letter, I command you. I put you under oath that this epistle be read among all the holy brethren. See, it's elevating the writing of script of uh, the apostles to scripture as it should be. And this letter is to be written among them and maybe he is so stern about this, maybe he is so strict about this because maybe they had gotten to a place where they were like doubting what he would send them. Maybe I don't know what was going on. Maybe they were getting in a place where they weren't appreciating the words of the apostles. But he says it's important that this be read among all the holy brethren. And so this is another reason, church, as to why we read the Bible in our services. This is why we read from the Old Testament. This is why we read from the New Testament. This is why we give attention to reading the scriptures. Is because the word of God must be read among the brethren, among us all. So the brethren are to give attention to reading. Now, last thing that I'll point out to you is the church's expectation of Jesus. We've seen it here, the church's expectation of God. We've seen, I hope, the church's expectation of herself. And then finally, we see the church's expectation of Jesus. What do we need from Jesus? And you notice there in verse 28, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the church's expectation of Jesus is this. We need bookend grace. We need grace from one end to the other end. From the 1-1 to the 5-28 of our lives, we need the grace of God. We need the grace of God to be humble in the times when things are going well and going the way that we want them to and we think God's blessing is on our lives. And we need the grace of Jesus Christ to have hope in the times when we are in the valleys. We need the grace of Jesus Christ to sustain us because that grace alone is sufficient 
for us, to uphold us, and to keep us going. And so Paul starts this letter with the grace of Christ. He ends it with the grace of Christ as he does in many of his letters. And it is fitting so because we need God's riches at Christ's expense in our lives on a daily basis if we will do anything for His glory and for His namesake. The gospel of our Lord has given us um, all of these expectations. What Jesus did to redeem us as sinners gives us an expectation of God that He'll do this. It gives us this expectation of ourselves. And this gives us the expectation that we have of Jesus. Do you have this expectation yourself? Or are you just part of a group of people who have that expectation, but you're not really, you just come here and do this, do this church stuff. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your personal Savior? Do you have a relationship with Him, with God through Jesus Christ? And if you don't, the call of the gospel is to repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the outward sign of these things is water baptism, where we are buried with Christ in baptism. And we are raised to walk in newness of life. Thank you for your attention this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. You've blessed us so greatly to have the Bible. Father, I confess that we neglect it. We forget it. Lord, we reject it. And I, I ask you to forgive us, Lord. And I pray, Father, that there would be just be a, a, a move of your Spirit among us here at New Life Baptist Church that we would treasure your Word because your Word tells us of who you are and who our Savior is. In Jesus' name, amen.